0: We may be living in a period in which the conscience from our nation has vanished. Now is not the time for preachers to be silent. Now is not the time for Christians to hide behind masks. Now is the time to call politicians to repentance. The church is the conscience of the nation. This is Andrew Smith. Pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Well, take your Bibles this morning and turn with me again to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 6. And when you find your place there, I want you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. We're looking at a section, verses 14 through 29, which is really the main emphasis of Mark chapter 6. The title of the message ungodly civil magistrates. Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 14. King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others said, he is Elijah. And others said, he is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. But an opportunity came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests, and the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her. Whatever you ask me, I will give you, up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. But because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. This is God's holy word. Please be seated as we bow for a brief word of prayer. Our Father, this is such a sobering passage of Scripture. It is a passage of Scripture that reminds us of the ruthless, vicious, hateful opposition often found among civil magistrates against Your Gospel, against Your truth, and against Your prophets. Lord, we pray that as we are taken back in time, to understand this story that we may understand its implications for the present. That none of us would leave without understanding this morning that serving You and proclaiming the Gospel will come with a cost. This has always been the case. So Lord, we pray that You would free us from the desire to live an easy life. Maybe You will bless us with ease and comfort. But Father, You have not promised us that. So help us with fresh eyes to see that, with deep contrition and conviction in our hearts, willing to confess our sins, willing to sacrifice our reputations, willing to sacrifice even our jobs if necessary to be faithful to You, no matter what the consequences may be. And in that process, we pray for our country. We pray that you might heal our land from wickedness, that there might be widespread repentance, beginning with our leaders and all citizens, that people may bow the knee to King Jesus, forsake their sins, and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. For that is the only hope for this world and for our country. We pray and ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Bible is clear from cover to cover, the Old Testament and the New Testament, that conflict with civil magistrates is inevitable for God's people. This is a story of God's people throughout history. It was John Calvin who said one time that when God wants to judge a nation, he gives to them wicked rulers. That was certainly true with apostate Israel, but it was also true with any number of other pagan nations in the Bible, and also nations throughout the history of the world. The story before us really encapsulates that sort of conflict, a sort of conflict which is always spearheaded by faithful prophet preachers who are marked with a holy boldness and proclaiming the truth so loudly that it causes civil magistrates to try to shut them up. That's always the cast of characters. It's always complete with some self-described arrogant king or civil magistrate, some bold prophet or preacher. And usually, it is also associated with the wicked influence of an ungodly woman who has an authority that has not been granted to her by God. And in that sense, is a reflection of Eve herself when she fell into the temptation of the serpent. These evil influences collide together to silence the voice of God by silencing the preacher of God and silencing the gospel of God. In our account today, we see these cast of characters. We see the civil magistrate, Herod, We see the prophets, John and Jesus, and we see this wicked woman, a sort of second coming of Jezebel, this woman named Herodias. Now we need to remember that Mark wants us to take a bite out of his theological sandwich, and we've been looking at that the last couple of weeks, that we have a Markan theological sandwich in this passage, the first piece of bread. It's really verses 7 through 13 and the sending out of the 12 apostles to proclaim the gospel. You then have a section in the middle of that, which is the meat, the passage we are looking at this morning, verses 14 through 29. And then the bottom piece of bread is verse 30, where we read the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. In the middle of sending out the 12 and the return of the 12, Mark purposely places in the middle of that, the beheading of John the Baptist. It's not because chronologically the beheading of John the Baptist occurred between the time Jesus sent the twelve out and the time the twelve returned. No, John puts it here and recounts this event to remind us that what was true of John the Baptist, what was true of Jesus, what was true of the apostles, and that is that they proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and were rejected by many will also be true of many Christians. The consequence of which could be martyrdom, but most assuredly will be at a minimum persecution and mockery. So Mark has set up his reminiscing of John the Baptist's death. Both John the Baptist and Jesus are executed by political tyrants. Political tyrants that both succumbed to outside pressure knowing that the people they were executing were innocent. Herod Antipas, as we read in this passage, gave in to the pressure of his wife Herodias and executes John in a grisly manner. Pilate gave in, we read later in the Gospels, gave in to the angry mob, setting up Jesus' execution on a cross upon Golgotha. John, as he writes about the life of our Lord, does not want us to miss the similarities between John and the the last greatest prophet whom Jesus called the greatest man ever born of women and Jesus who was the prophet of prophets. He doesn't want us to miss that the apostles of Jesus also were prophets. They were preachers proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and they had to leave some of the villages and towns of the Jews by shaking the dust off their feet because their message was rejected. Mark is giving to us the very sober but helpful point of theology that persecution of Christians from the hands of ungodly magistrates is not an aberration in history but rather it is the norm. It's what is to be expected. And it all begins because of those who preach the truth. John's identity as a prophet who proclaimed the good news of the kingdom was stated early in Mark's Gospel, back in chapter 1, coming right out of the gates, verse 2, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. In verse 7, John preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John the Baptist was the last greatest Old Testament prophet. John was known for one thing, and that was his preaching. And that is how Mark opens up his life of our Lord by showcasing John the Baptist, the prophet-preacher, But he also identified Jesus as a prophet early on. Back in chapter 1 again, after John was arrested, verse 14, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming or heralding or preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. I guess in one sense um, that uh, Herod wouldn't have been so bothered if there was merely the preaching of repentance, but notice that both with John the Baptist and with Jesus, there is not only the preaching of repentance, but there is the preaching of the coming of the kingdom of Christ, a kingdom that would threaten all other kings and all other kingdoms. And we saw earlier in chapter 6 that Jesus the prophet goes into his own hometown of Nazareth to preach in the synagogue, and he was rejected and shook the dust off his feet and went on a preaching tour around other cities because his own people rejected him. And he even said in verse 4, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. So if the prophet of all prophets could be rejected among his own family and among his own people, then why do we think that when we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God that civil magistrates won't view that as a threat? They always have and they always will. The emissaries of Christ, that is the apostles, have also been highlighted by Mark as great prophets. Not only John, not only Jesus, but also the apostles. Luke 9.2 says that Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. And Mark says that uh, in verse 11, if any place wouldn't receive them and listen to them, which means they were a mouthpiece for truth, they were to shake the dust off their feet. And what was their message? Verse 12, they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. They went out and proclaimed that in order to get into the kingdom of God, you must bow the knee to the one and only true king, that is, the Lord Jesus Christ. So it's clear up to this point in Mark's gospel that the themes of prophethood and martyrdom are on his mind. But now, as we move into this account, Mark reveals that there is a common thread of rejection of the gospel, and that common thread of the rejection of the gospel will always come at the hands of civil authorities, civil magistrates who abuse their power because of their depravity and they seek to silence the message of good news. Political tyrants will always oppose the gospel when they are in rebellion against God. And even in all of this, there is ultimately hope because God's voice can't be silenced. We read at the end of this account, John was executed, John's disciples came and buried his body, Once John left the scene, Jesus came and preached. Jesus also would be executed upon the cross, but He would rise again, His body being prepared by His followers. And those apostles would be the foundation of the church. And the church would be built throughout the world. No political tyrant can silence the message of the gospel. Now notice how Mark begins in verse 14. He begins with... A chronological sequence telling us that King Herod heard of Jesus and he heard of the preaching of the apostles. This must have been quite a preaching tour. There must have been many demons cast out, thousands of demons, thousands of people healed, thousands of souls saved. The casting out of demons, a clear sign that the kingdom of God had come, that God's kingdom had been established. He writes that John has now been dead for some time. Probably John was executed near the beginning of A.D. 29, and we know that as Mark writes in verse 14, John has been dead for at least a few months uh, because Mark indicates the fact that Herod thought that Jesus was John raised from the dead. And that leads Mark to now recount how John's death took place at the hands of Herod through the influence of Herodias. Both of these people having deranged minds and depraved hearts because they were rejectors of the one and only true gospel. Here's the bottom line. As an ungodly civil magistrate, Herod felt threatened by both John and Jesus' gospel influence. He fears John has been raised from the dead through the person of Jesus to haunt him. And he doesn't want to lose his power. He doesn't want to lose his kingdom. He doesn't want to lose his control. And he doesn't want to give up his sin. That is always the issue. Any kingdom that threatens his position and power must be snuffed out. So he kills John the Baptist and soon another political tyrant Namely, Pilate will pursue Jesus. Mark's clear point in all of this is the reality of political persecution at the hands of earthly tyrants who are threatened by the authority and the power of a greater king, the King of heaven and earth, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's where I want us to turn our attention this morning. What can we learn about civil authorities in our world today? How do civil authorities think? What is their agenda? And how do we know that they are in rebellion against God? Why do they behave the way they behave? Why do they have the policies that they have? Who do they see as the greatest threats to their power, fame, money, and authority? Well, the answer is, from our text, Christians those proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, His right to rule through His Son in the world today. This has been Mark's point from the beginning. We are now reaching Mark's primary point up to this point in his life of our Lord. He wants to tell us that the kingdom of Christ has been firmly established, the kingdom of Christ will go on, that the church is a great building in the world, the Bible calls it, Peter and Paul do, the temple of the Lord, and that no matter what, Christians are to proclaim the gospel in the face of political tyranny with unflinching boldness and undaunted determination because Jesus said He would build the church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. Now before we look at the verses, let me give you a little context regarding this civil magistrate that we're talking about. His name is Herod, that's what he's referred to as in this passage. He was part of the Herodian dynasty, and his proper name was Herod Antipas. You're familiar with his father being um, Herod the Great, who massacred the male children at the threat of the coming of the Messiah. We read about that in Matthew chapter 2. Herod the Great's grandson was Herod Agrippa. We read about him in Acts chapter 12. All of the Herods uh, essentially followed in the long line of ungodliness and Herod the Great, or who we might call Herod the Bad. The apple did not fall far from the tree. But this particular Herod, Herod Antipas, was one of four sons of Herod the Great, who upon his death had his kingdom divided up into four parts. Herod Antipas was the second of four sons, and he was declared the Tetrarch of Galilee. He reigned from the years 4 B.C. to about A.D. 39, and he was about 30 years into his 43-year reign as Tetrarch when he began to fear the influence of John and Jesus. Herod the Great had ten wives, And Antipas was the son of Herod the Great's fourth wife, Malthus. Antipas was a shrewd political leader, but he was less competent as his father. And as we'll see as we come to the conclusion of this story, his life ended in tragedy and in sadness because of his arrogance and his incompetence, but ultimately because of his rejection of both John and Jesus. He was a very arrogant man, He was essentially a spoiled brat. He had two large cities built in his honor, Tiberius and Sephorus, both within walking distance of Capernaum and Nazareth, which explains why he would have been so familiar with Jesus. Jesus was preaching in Galilee, in the synagogues, in the villages, and in the towns. But no matter how much power, no matter how much authority... He had, it was never enough. And that is always true, that apart from Christ, no matter how much power, authority, fame one may have, they will always be insecure, they will always be paranoid, they will always be fearful, they will never be satisfied, and such is the tragic story of Herod Antipas. Now with that context and background in place, what I think that we learn from verses 14 through 29 As we look at the example of Herod Antipas, we learn four characteristics often marking ungodly civil magistrates. I can't express to you this morning how important I think this passage is for our own day. I can't explain to you how important it is to understand this simple principle, there is nothing new under the sun. That what was going on in the heart and the mind of Herod Antipas is what is going on in the heart and the mind of any number of civil magistrates and civil authorities in our world today. You want to understand what's going on in the world today? Read your Bible. Understand Herod Antipas. Understand his ruthlessness. Understand his sin. Understand his derangement understand his impulsive nature, understand his arrogance, and most of all, understand that the real issue was he was a hater of God and he wanted to be his own king and boss. This is what always marks ungodly civil magistrates. So let's look at these four characteristics of ungodly civil magistrates. We'll begin in verses 14-16 through 16, where we learn that that ungodly civil magistrates are often notoriously irrational. Notoriously irrational. Verse 14 says that King Herod heard of it, heard of what? Well, Jesus' name, for Jesus' name had become known. Mark is cluing us into his paranoia. Or a person in high political office, he had suppressed God's truth so much that he couldn't think straight. And Mark reveals to us that his irrationality leads him to reject truth, to believe falsehood, affecting his ability to lead in a God-honoring way because of the conclusion he comes to regarding the identity of Jesus. It says there in verse 14 that he was a king, not technically speaking, but that is the way that he viewed himself. He viewed himself as more important than he really was. He had authority, but not the authority of a king. He only had one-fourth of his father's kingdom, and he wasn't a king, he was a tetrarch. But he viewed himself as a king, and he saw any other political enemies, or maybe even allies, as a threat to his authority. His fear, which undergirds these verses, it's simply this, the chopping off of John's head did not silence John's voice because another came, namely Jesus, the son of God, who was preaching the same thing and now he's sending his apostles out on a preaching tour in Herod Antipas' Galilee to preach the good news, listen to this, of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God had arrived. And so he's paranoid popular opinions about the identity of Jesus had surfaced. No doubt, as a political leader, he got his advisors and officials together to go research all of these different views about the identity of Jesus, and we see them enumerated for us, beginning in verse 14. Some said, John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. This was irrational because although... Both John and Jesus were preachers. Only one could perform miracles, and that was Jesus. There's no evidence in the Bible that John performed miracles. So this isn't based on evidence. This is based on superstition and Herod's own faulty man-made wisdom because he didn't want to recognize Jesus for who he really was, the Son of God, the true and final King. That was the conclusion he ultimately came to, as we see in these verses, but verse 15 gives another take on Jesus, but others said, he, that is Jesus, is Elijah. That was actually based on right theology, but a wrong conclusion, a reminder to us that you can have the right theology and you can apply it the wrong way. You can have the right theology, chapter and verse, and apply the truth erroneously and abusively, and such was the case here. Because the Old Testament did predict that Elijah will return as the forerunner to the Messiah, but that was John the Baptist, not Jesus. John was Elijah. Malachi 4, five: Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 11, we know that um, John the Baptist was the return of Elijah, if you will, because Jesus himself said that. Matthew 11, verse 13, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, and if you're willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Apparently, Herod didn't have ears to hear. John the Baptist was Elijah. So this is mistaken identity as Herod even entertains the notion that Jesus could have been Elijah. But then the third view, also in verse 15, another said Jesus is a prophet like one of the prophets of old. Well, true enough was the first part. Jesus was a prophet, but not the last part. Jesus was not like one of the prophets of old. Remember that in Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses spoke about Jesus. He said, "...a greater prophet than me is coming, but you must listen to Him above all other prophets." Implying the fact that He was the final prophet of prophets... Because, obviously, we know He is the Son of God. Jesus was completely unlike all of the prophets of old. In fact, we know that from Peter. You remember in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches about this, referring to Jesus as a prophet, quoting Moses. Moses said, "...the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers." So he'll be like Moses. He'll have a voice. He'll have human flesh." Will be a prophet of God, but Peter says, Moses said, You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you, and in it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken, from Samuel, those who came after him, who also proclaim these days. You are the sons of the prophets, and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up His servant, sent Him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Peter says, yeah, Jesus is the final prophet, but He's the final prophet unlike all the other prophets who must be listened to. Stephen also in his speech spoke this way, Acts 7 verse 37, this is, The Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai with our fathers. But Israel didn't listen when this final prophet came. Jesus even identified himself that way. He said in John Verse 45, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, and that is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And then Jesus says this, For if you believed Moses, you would believe Me. For Moses wrote of Me. I am that final prophet. And that is why the author of Hebrews Speaks in no uncertain terms. Long ago, at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. And then, in, in Chapter Three of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews says that He was faithful to Him who appointed Him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house, comparing Jesus the Prophet to Moses the Prophet. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. He's a greater Prophet. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's household as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence in our boasting, in our hope. There's no way the third view should have been taken seriously based upon even the words of Jesus and what the apostles preached. Herod would later mock Jesus. He would have a chance to meet Jesus, but would mock Jesus at his trial because in Herod's heart was hatred ultimately for Jesus in everything he preached. We read in Luke chapter 13 that some of the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Everyone knew that Herod wanted to kill Jesus, so he's looking for a reason to kill him. He's looking for the popular reasons people identify who Jesus is, but he's going to come to his own conclusion. Herod was suffering from what theological doctors could call a bad case of conscience. He had put John to death unjustly, and so... He concludes that Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Notice verse 16. But when Herod heard of it, that is all of these views, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He's been raised. He had severed John's head, but he had not silenced his own conscience. This was, by the way, the most irrational of the three positions. It's easy to understand. You can misinterpret Deuteronomy 18 and say Jesus is a prophet like all the other prophets because Moses said that. You're going to have a prophet like your brothers. It'd be easy to misunderstand Malachi 4.5 somewhat mysterious prophecy of the return of Elijah, and there were so many similarities between John and Jesus. They were, in fact, co- fact cousins that you could conflate the two and misunderstand that. But to believe some bizarre thing based upon your own wisdom that Jesus was John raised from the dead, the only reason you could come to that conclusion is not because your political advisors informed you that was the right position, but because your conscience informed you that this was John the Baptist coming back in the person of Jesus to haunt you and to judge you. And in the ancient world, there was a popular belief that resurrections were omens of impending judgment. If that was Herod's thinking, he was right in one sense because God would judge him and part of his judgment would be the fact that he had suppressed the truth so much that he would never escape his guilt for slaying one of God's innocent prophets, namely John the Baptist. Instead of weeping and repenting, he wallowed in his fear. What misery, what shame, his conscience haunted him And he thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. I just want to say this this morning. That God has placed in your soul a conscience that is meant to haunt you and convict you of sin. David writes about this in Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. David says, when I kept silent about my sin, here's how he describes a conscience that bothers you. My bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Misery. Shame. Then David says, I acknowledge my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach Him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from the trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What a burden, what a weight was lifted off of David's shoulders when he confessed his sin. All unconfessed sin will bother a conscience, even the conscience of an ungodly king, and he must do something about it. Jesus, however, was not Herod's problem. He was Herod's solution. Herod's issue is, he did not want to bow to another king. That is always true about ungodly civil magistrates. They are so notoriously irrational because they are blinded. They are blinded by pride. They are blinded by money. They are blinded by fame. They are blinded by power. And they can't see past all of that to, in humility, bow to King Jesus. Think of the many tyrants throughout history. Think of the paranoia of Hitler in the bunker in the last days of World War II. Think of the paranoia of Nero of Stalin, of Pharaoh, who was willing to take lashings from God in the form of plagues, then give up his power and his authority to enslave Israel. Because sin always produces stupidity and irrationality among the wealthy and the powerful. Because they get to a point where they think they are above God. Herod couldn't think straight because he needed his heart changed. And all political tyrants lose their ability to make rational and capable decisions when they are in utter and total rebellion against God. They are the epitome of 2 Corinthians 4, the God of this world having blinded their minds. They're the minds of the unbelieving from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. As the saying goes, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Such was true of Herod. He would not be swayed from his irrational view that Jesus was John raised from the dead and so God let him live in the misery of a bad conscience. And you can be sure that given enough power in the hands of ungodly civil magistrates, they will not only continue to suppress the truth of of God within their own heart to their own detriment, but they will also do it to the detriment of the citizens of whatever country they are leading. One of the clearest evidences of God's judgment on a nation is that He will give to that nation irrational leadership that makes decisions that absolutely make no sense, except to the people making them. That certainly was true with Herod. He was notoriously irrational. And that is a mark of an ungodly civil magistrate. But there's a second mark or characteristic of Ungodly civil magistrates, not only are they notoriously irrational, verses fourteen through sixteen, but secondly, they are grossly immoral. Verses 17 through 20. Notice your Bibles. For it was Herod who had sinned and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not, for Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Mark's remarks about Herod's curiosity about the identity of Jesus now leads him to detail the death of John the Baptist, and he gives it to us in soap opera-like immorality that grows more and more and more corrupt revealing to us that John the Baptist was put to death because he boldly confronted Herod about his gross immorality, about his sin. It all started in the privacy of the palace, a personal decision, not one to be questioned, but John did question it. And therefore, he was ultimately arrested and executed. Notice verse 17 closer, for it was Herod... Who had sinned and seized John and bound him in prison. Bound him in prison. We read in Luke chapter 9, if you turn over there with me just for a moment, Luke chapter 9 and verse 7. It says that Herod the Tetrarch heard about all that was happening and he was perplexed because it was said by some that John had been raised from the dead, by some that Elijah had appeared. By others, that one of the prophets of old had risen. Herod said, John I beheaded, but who is this about whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. So while verse 17 says that Herodias had a grudge, verse 19 that is, had a grudge against John, apparently Herod didn't hold the same grudge perhaps even seeking spiritual answers or wanting to see miracles. He wanted to meet Jesus. But in any event, Herodias, his wife, got in the way. Notice verse 17. He seized John and bound him in prison, not for his own sake, but for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. She got in the way. Brothers, I want to tell you This is a valuable reminder. A good wife can be a man's greatest blessing, and a bad wife can be his greatest curse. Here John preaches a message of repentance, something he did to everyone, right? All the way back in chapter 1 and verse 2, verse 7, verse 8, a message of repentance. Over and over and over again, he preached repentance, Matthew 3.2. In order to do this, and in order for you to preach repentance, you must mention, listen to this, specific sins. And not only specific sins, but specific sins of specific people. John did that. Not just specific sins, not just specific sins of specific people, but specifically the specific sin of the immorality of Herod and Herodias. He said, as verse 17, verse 18 indicates, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This bold preacher of the good news, could not give the good news apart from giving the bad news. That... Herod was a sinner. He denounced the religious leaders in Matthew 3, 7 as a brood of vipers. And apparently he called out political leaders as well because all biblical preaching does this. The church doesn't have one message for each other and another message for the world. We don't growl at the church and then grovel at the feet of political leaders. No, we tell all people everywhere to repent and to flee the wrath that is to come. And that's exactly what John did. But he listened to his wife and sent and seized John. He arrested him, bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias. Herodias is identified here as his brother Philip's wife. Mark tells us Herod had married her. This was a twisted family tree and somewhat confusing, but let me give, give it to you in summary. Philip was her father's half-brother. So she was married to her half-uncle, divorced him, and married another uncle. That's how immoral this was. And you can imagine, a domestic dispute is going to be raised at some point when you marry one of your nieces that you encouraged to divorce, one of your half-brothers. What could possibly go wrong? (laughs) Well, a lot went wrong in the world of sin. As John says here, it is not lawful for you you to have your brother's wife. You have broken God's law. It doesn't matter who you are. You are under God's law. It doesn't matter that you're a king or a tetrarch. You are under God's law. You are living immorally because adultery had occurred, divorce had occurred, and incest had occurred. Three sins. Gross immorality. In fact, this angered Herod's former father-in-law so much. King Aretas, he was the ruler of the Nabataean Arabian area, southeast of the Dead Sea, he declared war against Herod, and if it wasn't for the Roman army, Herod would have been soundly defeated. But John didn't care who it was, he didn't care what sin it was, sin was sin, and so he would call out the immorality of Herod. What was his text? Well, probably Leviticus 18.16, you shall not uncover the nakedness of your brother's wife, it is your brother's nakedness. Or how about this verse? Leviticus 20, verse 21. If a man takes his brother's wife, it is impurity. He has uncovered his brother's nakedness. They shall be childless. In other words, God will curse you with childlessness because of such gross immorality. John said, King, with all due respect, you are living in sin. You see, John had no sacred cows in his herd. He protected no special interest groups. He didn't poll people to see what they wanted him to preach. He didn't play to the grandstands. No, he preached the unadulterated truth and he left the consequences to God and there were consequences to come. And notice the language of verse 18. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. This is not some one-time sermon. He had been saying to him, He probably preached multiple sermons regarding the sins of political leaders, multiple sermons regarding the sin of Herod and Herodias. He called his wife out as well. In fact, there may be some evidence that he even met Herod and said this to his face. Because, verse 18 says, John had been saying to Herod these things. This was an ongoing issue. Herod did have a palace that he lived in, and beneath that palace was a dungeon at Machaerus, scholars tell us. I have a vivid imagination. I like to think that Herodias was awoken each morning to John's booming voice, reminding them both of their gross immorality, their need to repent and place faith in King Jesus. I can hear her saying, Honey, can you please shut that Christian preacher up? Sick of hearing him. So many good men have went wrong because of the wicked influence of a woman who was immoral. That's exactly what happens here. Herod couldn't control Herodias. So perhaps he allowed John to continue preaching this way to get under her skin. I don't know. Maybe that. Maybe he enjoyed listening to the message because he had some sort of religious fascination. Maybe his conscience was bothered to such a degree that he was close to repentance. But likely none of that was true because Matthew 14.5 says, though he wanted to put John to death, he feared the people because they heard him to be a prophet. There, there was no spiritual experience by Herod. He was a politician. He feared the people. He feared his wife. He feared John, but he feared everyone but God Himself. And verse 19 indicates that the more John harped on this sinful union, the deeper the grudge grew in Herodias's heart. Verse 19, Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death but she could not. History tells us that Herod Anabas fell in love with Herodias on a visit he made to her in Rome where they had an affair. In order to marry her, he had to convince her to divorce her husband, which was his half-brother and her half-uncle, sick and twisted. She was a sick and twisted woman. She turned against Herod just like Jezebel did against Ahab. You know this is the story of history. Wicked women in places of authority they should not be in, and weak men listening to these wicked women, these Jezebels, these Herodiases. You remember Jezebel, the wife of Ahab, king of Israel. She was such a wicked queen We read about in 1 Kings, the book of 1 Kings, that she massacred all the prophets of God that opposed the Baal worship in the sanctuary that she set up. And after Elijah the prophet defeated her on Mount Carmel, she swore revenge against him. 1 Kings 21.19 says that he prophesied against her, saying she would be trampled and eaten by dogs. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. The only thing that was found was her skull and her feet and the palms of her hands. That was all that was left to bury. Because God will always balance the scales of justice. Wickedness may go on for a time and for a season, but righteousness will eventually triumph over evil. But don't overlook the fact that sometimes evil triumphs. And in this case, Herodias got the better of Herod and of John the Baptist as well. Notice verse 20. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Herodias understands that she's not going to be able to win the heart of uh, her husband Herod over, so she begins to plot. She begins to plan. Got to give some credit to Herod. He had a respect for John. He knew he was different than all the other men that he knew, all the other politicians that were compromisers and weak men. Here was a man who stood on principle instead of sitting on passion. Here was a man. Notice, who was righteous and holy. He recognized the godliness of John the Baptist, the polar opposite of himself, and all of those in his world who vacillated and compromised for self-serving political purposes. Behind his boldness lay conviction. John appealed to the law of God, and Herod respected that. He couldn't figure John out. He was so righteous and so holy that he kept him safe, probably out of fear of the people because they thought he was a prophet. But when he heard him, verse 20 says, he was greatly perplexed and he heard him gladly. Although he was morally bothered, politically motivated, and merrily disturbed, he let John keep his voice because John was declaring something worth listening to because it demanded the attention of of all of those around. That's always how God works in the world when the Gospel is proclaimed, when truth is proclaimed, when the church stands on the authority of God's Word, when the church lives forth the law of God and proclaims the law of God. Sometimes it is so starkly different than everything else that is heard that you actually have a voice. And that's what's happening here. What sort of weak argument is it For someone to say, and I've heard people say this, that since the United States is not God's chosen people, that the church has no right to demand civil magistrates to obey God's law. What sort of convoluted thinking is that? To think that just because the United States of America has not replaced ethnic Israel as God's Old Testament people, that therefore the Old Testament has nothing to say to us or that the Bible has nothing to say to us about how we deal with civil magistrates. All the prophets of old declared to any civil magistrate that was in rebellion that unless they repented of their sins, they would die and go to hell that anyone in the world who refused to bow to King Jesus would suffer the wrath of King Jesus. God uses the message of truth to call a nation to repentance, to call leaders to repentance. Herod's conscience was clearly affected, right? He thought Jesus was John, raised from the dead, coming to haunt him. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 2 that when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. I just want to say this. We may be living in a period in which the conscience from our nation has vanished. Now is not the time for preachers to be silent, now is not the time for Christians to hide behind masks. Now is the time to call politicians to repentance. The church is the conscience of the nation. As we declare the law of God, as we proclaim the gospel, no nation can be healed from their sin apart from the voice of the church calling that nation to repentance. And that begins with calling civil magistrates to repentance. Christians in our country may be the only conscience left. So if Christians keep their mouths shut, there will be no hope of any reformation and any revival. How do you know a nation is under God's judgment? He gives to that nation notoriously irrational leaders who are grossly immoral. What does that lead to? It leads to irrationality among the citizens. It leads to an, an amped up rejection of truth, rejection of the gospel, because in the midst of all the lies, the truth becomes louder, and now they finally understand what the church is saying. What the church is saying is, if you do not repent of your sins and place faith in Christ, you will die and go to hell. The church can't hide behind cultural Christianity and say, well, we're just trying to help the world be a better place. We're just trying to heal the world. We're just trying to help people get along. No, that's not what the church is here for. church is here to proclaim the gospel. And when you have all sorts of irrational policies and gross immorality, even in legislation, and corruption at the highest of levels, and you have that sort of darkness, when the gospel is actually preached... It shines so brightly that it blinds the eyes of those who want to reject all of that truth. And friends, that will lead to persecution. That will lead to an attempt by civil magistrates to silence the only truth that is being known because you have exposed them and you have exposed their lies. It's exactly what was happening in the days of Jesus and the days of John the Baptist. Let us not forget... Jesus was executed by a political tyrant. Jesus was executed by wicked rulers in Israel, wicked politicians in Rome, all to the glory of God. Because here is Mark's point. All Christians have a cross to bear. They persecuted Christ, they will persecute us. If they hated Him, they will hate us. This is, don't lose it, Mark's whole point. Remember the Mark and Sandwich. He sends the 12 out two by two. First piece of bread. They return, second piece of bread. What is in the middle? Mark is a storyteller. He says, Let me tell you a story. Once upon a time, Jesus walked this earth. He sent the 12 apostles out. They preached the gospel. Some, maybe many, perhaps most, rejected that message. They shook the dust off their feet. They continued to preach. They returned to Jesus for accountability. Uh, But before I tell you about their return and their report, let me tell you about John the Baptist who did the same thing and it cost him his head. It cost him his life. Because true discipleship will always cost us something. Lord willing, next time we will look at the final two characteristics of ungodly civil magistrates. But I just want to leave you with this. What do we do at such a time as this? Very simply, we open our mouths. We open our mouths to God in prayer, asking Him to give us courage, asking Him to grant us grace, and we open our mouths to the world and we declare the Gospel. We do it boldly. We do it graciously, but we do it firmly. We do it clearly, and we don't hide. Because that is what faithful Christians do. It's what John the Baptist did. It's what Jesus did. It cost them both their lives. Probably won't cost us our lives, but it may cost us a lot of other things. So we have to count the cost, and we have to seek to be faithful. But understand, there is nothing new under the sun. Herod is alive and well in the United States. And we know his motives. We know his secrets. We know his plots. And we know there are always wicked, evil women behind him. Just look at the president and vice president and you will see. Let us pray. Father in heaven, your word is holy and true, convicting and compelling. Lord, and very sobering. Lord, we don't, talk about these matters lightly but we do talk about them we do face them head on we do understand the clarity of your word calls us to live faithfully to proclaim your truth to call sinners to repentance whoever they may be Lord help us not to count our lives dear for your sake Lord help us to be faithful until the end. And and help that faithfulness to begin with our own household, with our own children, with our neighbors, with our co-workers. Lord, to faithfully tell them who Christ is, to tell them that they must bow the knee to Christ, to urge them to do that, to point out their gross immorality, to point out their sin. Lord, give the church a voice and a platform in this generation that perhaps it hasn't had in other generations because of the times we live in. We pray that You would receive all of the glory for that, Lord, as we faithfully live for You and proclaim Your truth. We ask and pray all of these things in the blessed name of Christ. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.christreformedcc.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.pastorandrewsmith.com.